What happened to uh, what happened to short sleeves yesterday? Man, oh man! I went out to carry some stuff to the parking lot, and whew, that wind. The wind like set me free out there. I want to ask you to turn to uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. 22. There isn't any 42. Matthew 22, folks. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, well, good luck to you. There's some things that happen here. Uh, they've been questioning Jesus. I'll tell you, the last week of Jesus' earthly life, they questioned him, trying to trap him in his words. On Sunday, he rode the, the little donkey into Jerusalem. On Monday, he cursed the fig tree and uh, cleansed the temple. On Tuesday, they started asking him questions. On Wednesday, there's nothing recorded. Apparently, he rested with his disciples. And then on Thursday, uh, they started asking him questions again. And the questions are aimed to uh, humiliate him or to catch him in a trap. And, of course, this is Jesus, so they weren't able to do that. If you look at Matthew 22 and go on back into 21 and see the fig tree withering and the authority of Jesus questioned after he cleansed the temple, and then Jesus' parable of the tenants, I'm going to give you a word here that you probably already know if you've studied uh, uh, either rhetoric or um, debate, the word polemic. Polemic means that there are people at opposite poles, and Jesus is attacking the uh, Jewish leaders by his parable, and he tells this parable of the vineyard. And I'm not going to spend much time on it, but it's just basically that a uh, landlord owned a vineyard. This is verse uh, 33 of Matthew 21, so I've backed up a little bit. He planted a vineyard, uh, he dug a wine press in it, he built a tower to watch over it. Uh, he did everything he could for his vineyard, and then he went on a journey, the landowner did, and he sent servants back to get his fruit uh, in season. And every servant that he sent back they beat him up, or they killed him, or they stoned him to death, or they threw him out of the vineyard. And finally he said, well, I'll send my son. Surely they'll listen to him. Uh, in the East, when you send your son, it means you yourself have come. And so he sent his son. And the tenants who were working the vineyard said, hey, this is the heir. Let's kill him, and the vineyard will be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard, which is a detail Jesus includes here. 
Uh, you can see down there in verse 39, they, they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Uh, Jesus was taken outside the city of Jerusalem and crucified. And so this is really a story about God sending prophets and then sending his son. But these guys don't get it yet. And Jesus asks this question in verse, 30, uh, verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of that vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And uh, verse 41 says, He'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he'll rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the share of the crop at harvest time. And then Jesus quotes an Old Testament scripture out of Isaiah. And then he says, You said correctly, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you and given to people who will bear fruit. Now, this is a frightening parable. He's basically warning those who have the kingdom of God that if they don't use it properly, God will take it away from them and give it to those who will bear fruit. And to those, to those men, verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Now, that's a clear statement. Jesus is attacking these Pharisees, and in, the, in verse 45 it says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they perceived He was talking about them, that they're going to lose the authority in the kingdom, lose the leadership of the kingdom. And there is a veiled reference in this parable to 70 A.D. When the Romans came and for three and a half years besieged the city of Jerusalem and finally destroyed the city. And when they did, they burned the temple. And when they burned the temple, all the, the ornate materials of the temple were burning. The gold of the temple melted in between the stones of the temple and so for the Romans to get the gold out after the temple had burned, they had to pry every stone off every other stone. And Jesus predicted that in Matthew 24, that not one stone of this temple be left on another, but all these stones would be thrown down. So here is a parable that he tells in the middle of their questioning him about his authority. He tells them a parable about what's going to happen to them. And they finally figure out that he's talking about them. Then he tells a parable of the wedding banquet. There's a second parable. Now, the first one attacked the leaders. The second one is very similar. In the, wedding, the parable of the wedding banquet, uh, he invited a lot of people, and they would not come. They had excuses. And so when the king came, uh, verse 11, when he came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. And when uh, a wealthy man threw a wedding banquet, for his son. 
at the door because most people in those days had only one set of clothing, except for the wealthy. Now, this is why the Sermon on the Mount says they were worried about what they would wear and worried about what they would eat because they were in poverty. And so since they had only one set of clothing, the master of the wedding feast would hand out a robe to everyone who comes in to cover their clothing so they could eat and drink and not worry about spilling. And like I said yesterday, they don't have napkins. They used unleavened bread for their napkins. And uh, so here's a guy that shows up in the wedding feast, and he doesn't have the clothing. Well, basically, if the master of the feast doesn't provide your clothing, then you can't be in there. Uh, And what this teaches is you can't come to Jesus on your own terms. You have to receive his covering. You have to receive his protection. You can't just decide, well, I'm going to do it my own way and end up coming to God. You come his way, and you let him cover you. And this idea of a garment to cover us is carried over into Revelation, and it tells us there that the white linen that the saints wear is their good deeds. So what we do that's right in this world is our reward in the next. So there's a sense in which you can take it with you. You don't take your wealth with you. But you take your good, the good things that you've done to help people, that you take with you. Any question on this? See, his parables are attacks on these people who think they can come to God because they're righteous enough. But they can't. They're not invited. And what happens to these? The king tells his attendants, verse 13 of chapter 22. Tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Yes? This was after the, the invitations were sent out and, and nobody came. So he told them to go out and gather people from the highways and buy them. Yeah. Get anybody that you can get and bring them in. He had to come in some other way. Yeah, There's a parable also, a sim- not really a parable, but a statement by Jesus where he says, I am the gate to the sheep pen, and no one, no one can enter uh, unless he comes in by me. Anybody who tries to come over some other way is a thief and a robber. Yes. Yeah, he calls Judas friend when he kisses him. Yeah, the word friend is frequently used in the New Testament. I think there are four or five times where the individual word friend is followed by a real judgment on that person. So it's not always really a friend. You know, it's like saying, what's your problem, friend? You know. 
It is. The word friend here is a put down. Right. But it's pejorative here. It's totally negative. <laughs> yeah. Watch out if a southern lady says, "Isn't that precious?" You know that. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Another one's. Another one is, "Bless your heart." You know. <laughs> yeah. There are times in the Bible, uh, the Book of Job. Every time the word curse occurs in the book of Job, you know, like where Job's wife says, curse God and die and so on. Uh, the Hebrew word is actually barak, it's bless. But it means the opposite. Sarcasm. Yeah, it's, a, it's, there are words, you know, there, the word holy is even used for prostitutes. Because in Canaan, the prostitutes were considered holy by the you know, the worshipers of Baal and Asherah. And so the Jews use that word in a pejorative, in a put-down sense. So good point that friend is frequently used as a put-down. Yeah, really. Yeah, it does depend on the tone, yeah. Friend, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Yeah, yeah, that's not, not a friend. Uh, the next question they asked Jesus, again, trying to put him on the horns of a dilemma. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? If Jesus says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, it's going to make everybody in Judea angry because they hate the Romans. If he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar... Then they'll go tell uh, the, the Romans, and of course he'll be he'll be arrested for sedition, and that'll be the end of him. So, either way, he can't say yes or no on this one. So, what does he say? Whose image is on the coin? The key word here is the word image. It's the Greek word icon. Icon means. It's, it's a translation of the word image for the image of God back in the first chapter of Genesis. And so he says, whoever has Caesar's image, give it to Caesar. But whoever has God's image, give it to God. In other words, give yourselves to God. And that just blew him away. And so the Pharisees gave up. And then some guy asks about the great commandment. What's the greatest commandment in the law? The law has 611, 611 commandments. Let me just show you something here. <clears throat> the word Torah, I wrote it out on the board yesterday. Um, the word Torah has a numerical value. All words in Hebrew have a numerical value. If you add this number up, for the word Torah, you'll see it's, it adds up 611. And the rabbis know that there are exactly 611 regulations in the law. 
Now, some rabbis say 613, but they count the same law twice. The law about boiling a young goat in its mother's milk. You know, know that one? You read that one? See, the nations around Israel boiled a young goat in its mother's milk in worship of their gods. So God says, you will not do that. And the second law they put in there twice is the first fruits law, when they count up 613. But the word Torah itself means 611. And there's a place in Deuteronomy where the rabbis translate it, this is the 611 that God gave to Moses. So Torah has 611 regulations. So when a guy comes up and says, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Holy cow. You know, you want to go back and count all those regulations and pick out one that's... So you'd think at least he would go with the Ten Commandments. But he doesn't. He goes with two regulations that sum up the Ten Commandments. One is Deuteronomy 6, 4 and following, where he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then he quotes Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so those are the great laws. If you take the Ten Commandments, the first five are about authority. And the second five are about how we treat each other. No adultery, no stealing, no murder, no coveting, no lying, false witness. So the two commands that Jesus chooses, perfect answer, sum up all ten commandments. Love God and love man. And those two commandments become the centerpiece of the New Testament. Uh, John's whole, all five of John's letters, all five of his works, the gospel, first, second, third John and Revelation are all about those two things. Love and faith. Faith in God, loving one another. And that sums up the Ten Commandments. And that is the law. Paul says it sums up the entire law. When you say, when you love your neighbor as yourself, you've completed all the regulations that God gave us. Jesus, brilliant. He just answers like that. Perfect answer. Then after all these people have asked him questions, and he's answered them, and they, they don't know what to do from there on, he asks them a question. And that's what I want to deal with today. Verse 41. Matthew twenty-two forty-one. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? And by the way, when you read the word Christ in the Gospels, Every time it should be translated Messiah, because these are Jews, and they don't call him Christ. They call him Mashiach, Messiah, the Anointed One. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, he's the son of David. You know, everybody knows that. He said, speaking to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply from that day on. No one dared to ask him any more questions. 
That's the question to end all questions. I want to look at this. How can... Here's David. Now, you've read in the beginning of, of Matthew the genealogy of Jesus. It comes down through David from Abraham and ends up down here with Jesus Christ. Okay? That's the, uh, this, this letter here, the letter X is the Greek letter that starts out the name Christ in, in Greek. And this is the way they, they write Jesus Christ in the manuscripts. They, they summarize it. And so the Messiah has to be son of David. They knew that from Old Testament because David, uh, in 2 Samuel 7, 14 and through 18, God tells David, you will never lack a son to rule on your throne forever. And that is Jesus. Because he's ruling even back there during the time of David. Now he's the son of David, but David calls him, and this is Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110 is quoted 32 times in the New Testament. One of the most important little psalms in the Bible. It's got six verses is all. But it's a powerful predictive prophecy. Verse 4 in Psalm 110 says, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, who's Melchizedek? It's only mentioned one place in the Old Testament before Psalm 110, and that's Genesis 14. He's the one that uh, Abraham paid tithes to, and he blessed Abraham, and that makes Melchizedek greater than Abraham. And even his name, Melchizedek, He's the king of Salem, which is later became Jerusalem. King of Salem means king of peace. And then the name Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. So here's a man who is the king of righteousness, the king of peace, and he blesses Abraham, which puts him above Abraham, and Abraham pays him tithes. And there's a major point made of this in the book of Hebrews. So, verse 1 and verse 4 are quoted again and again in the New Testament. Referred to again and again. David, Jesus says, when he writes this psalm, is speaking by the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit led him to say this. Notice, have you turned to Psalm 110? Would you do that? Just look at Psalm 110 and look at verse 1. Do you see the two words, Lord, there? Do you see a difference in those two words? No, Matthew, see, Matthew is Greek. So there's no distinction made. Yeah. Right. The Lord said to my Lord. Two different words there in the Hebrew text. Whenever you see this capitalized all the way through, sometimes you'll even see God capitalized all the way through. When you see that, that is God's personal name, Yahweh. There are 72 pronunciations of the divine name. 
most scholars have come to believe that Yahweh is that pronunciation. Now, to a Jew, you don't use that word. The Jews, by the time of Jesus, had stopped using his name altogether because the, the, the commandment that says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, in vain. And they're afraid they're using it in vain, so they don't use it at all. And that's how the pronunciation was lost. The only person who knew the pronunciation was the high priest. And he would call God's name on the other priests three times. If you read Numbers 6, 24-26, uh, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh lift up His face upon you. Yahweh give you peace. If you look at those three uses of the name Yahweh, God's number is three. You know, we talked about this. Holy, holy, holy. Never two times, never four times. Uh, I spoke on uh, honor in chapel at uh, Dallas Christian uh, this Thursday, and I used uh, the fourth chapter of Revelation. And in that chapter, they sing a hymn to the one seated on the throne, Yahweh. And they sing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who's coming. Three, three, three. Three sets of three. You can't miss it in the Scripture. He is three. And so here is Yahweh speaking to my Lord, David says. Adonai, this word here. That's a plural word. Like the name Elohim is plural. Adonai is plural. It can be a plural of majesty, or it could be that there is more than one involved here. Yahweh to Adonai. The Lord says to my Lord. Now, in Isaiah 6, go to Isaiah 6 with me, please. 1 through 3, you have the same phenomenon. Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. Verse 1 says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw Adonai, the human figure of God, seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, so they feel embarrassed. They cover their feet because they feel dirty in the presence of God. And they shout back and forth to each other, antiphonal chorus, Holy, holy, holy. There it is again. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the fullness of the whole earth is His glory, it says. And so... They're crying out, they're singing in verse 3 to Yahweh, but it's Adonai who's seated on the throne in verse 1. So in other words, Adonai is the human figure of God, the one Isaiah sees on the throne. And John, in the New Testament, John 12, 41, 
says, Isaiah says the things he does here in the sixth chapter because he saw Jesus' glory beforehand and spoke of him. In other words, here's Isaiah looking at Jesus on the throne 700 years before Jesus is born. How can that be? How can he be reigning in the time of David, 1000 B.C., reigning in the time of Isaiah, 700 B.C., and he hadn't even been born yet? You're getting it, aren't you? John the Baptist said, the one who comes after me is really before me because he was before me. Jesus is before and after. He is the A and the Z, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, there's something amazing that happens in the Old Testament. The Hebrew alphabet, Aleph and Tov, are the first and last letters of the alphabet. Aleph and Tov. And in almost every verse of the Old Testament, Aleph and Tov are there by themselves, written like this, as a separate word. For example, Genesis 1.1. In the Hebrew text, it says, Breshit bara Elohim eth. Hashemayim ba'eth. It's in there twice. The middle word is just this word. The first and last letter of the alphabet. When they translate it, they translate it in beginning, God created. And then they skip that word. The heavens and the earth. It's a word with no meaning. And it's in almost every verse of the Old Testament. The Hebrew grammars tell us that it's a pointer to the direct object. But it's the first and last letter of the alphabet. And the rabbis say that puts the Messiah back in every verse of the Old Testament. It's in there again and again, thousands of times. So here is the first and the last throughout the Old Testament. Two friends of mine, one's uh, studied to be a rabbi, and then they rejected him because he became a believer in Jesus. His name's Joel Young. And a man named Truman Blocker, who's a Ph.D. in, uh, in physics. And these two guys got together and wrote a book about this thick, entitled Yeshua, Come and See. And they asked me to do the proofreading of their Hebrew in the book. And when I read the book, it just blew me away how many times this shows up and how many times the name Yeshua shows up in the Old Testament. Jesus. Again and again and again. Literally thousands of times for both this and the name Yeshua. You know, He is before and after. Let me ask you to turn one other place. Are you still in Isaiah? Turn to Isaiah 11. Look at verse 1. 
Don, you got it there? You read it good and loud? Branch capitalized? Now, he's already talked about this back in 4.2, Isaiah 4.2. He talked about it in 6.13. He says, the holy seed is in the stump of the tree. And now out of that stump comes a branch. So here, here's the stump. Out of the side of the stump comes this branch. And it bears fruit. And what stump is it there? Stump of Jesse. Who was Jesse? David's father. So he's talking about a Davidic king. All the Targums. Now, Targum is a Jewish commentary written in Aramaic on the Hebrew text. All the Targums. This is King Messiah. The branch is King Messiah. You've got it right. He comes out of the stump of Jesse, meaning he's a Davidic king. He comes after Jesse. But look down in verse 10. What's he called there? The root. How can he be the branch and the root? You see, he is before and after. As the root, he is the source of Jesse. Revelation picks this up and calls him the root of David over and over and over. He's before David. Psalm 45, verse 13 in our Bible says, Instead of his ancestors, they are called his children. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these people back 2,000 years before Christ, are actually the children of the Messiah. Uh, Psalm 45, 13. Uh, that's in the Hebrew text. It may not be exactly the same in the English, but it's within a, a verse or two. You find it? It says, instead of his ancestors, they will be called his children. Now, some of the translations don't get that very well because it, it doesn't make sense to the translators, especially the Jewish translators. But the reality is the one who comes after me, John says, is really before me. He is Alpha and Omega. He is the Word through whom the universe was created, and He's the one who comes at the very end. The second coming of Christ. One more place I want you to look. And we're almost done. Romans chapter 1. And I think it's either 2 and 3 or 3 and 4. Romans chapter 1. Look what Paul says. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his Son, who as to his flesh, 
was a descendant of David, and who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the Son of David, but He's also the Son of God. And as the Son of God, He always has been and always will be. Hebrews says the same yesterday, today, and forever. But as a son of David, he was born in human flesh. Here's the one who existed with God in the creation of the world, born in human flesh. He is before and he is after. The Alpha and the Omega. Excuse me? Uh, I was, it's kind of the NIV, but I was quoting more of the Greek. Okay, I'll find Psalm 45 for you. That's the great, the wedding feast between the king and the bride. And um, this is just loaded. This is called a masculine, which is a psalm that brings wisdom with it. It's a wedding song. Here's a description of the Messiah. You are the most, verse, uh, verse 2. Now, in, in Hebrew, this would be verse 3. That's part of the reason my, I'm wrong here on the verse. You are the most excellent of men. Your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird on your sword upon your side, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations, that's us, the Gentiles, fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. It's one of the rare places in the Old Testament where the Messiah is called God. Hebrews quotes this in chapter 1. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Now, this is what they used to bury somebody in. From palaces of ivory... The music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women. At your right hand in the royal is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. In other words, this is the richest of brides for the richest of grooms. And then he tells the bride, consider, give ear, listen, pay attention. Forget your people, your father's house. Forget staying here on earth. The king is enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. Men of wealth will seek your favor. All glorious is the princess within. Within. Now, her chamber is not there. You can see that's in brackets. It's saying that she's beautiful on the inside. 
She's glorious inside. See, this is the wedding between the church and the Messiah. In embroidered garments, she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her and are brought to you. They are led in with joy and gladness. They enter the palace of the king. Now here it is. NIV translates that your sons will take the place of your fathers. But the Hebrew text says, instead of your ancestors, they will be your children. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the Goyim, the Gentiles, will praise you forever and ever. This is Jesus and the church. Now, there was probably the marriage of David and one of his wives back in the ancient times. But this is a picture when he makes this statement, and it is verse 16 in the English, your sons will take the place of your fathers. Instead of your ancestors, they'll be your children. So see, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David, who are really his fathers in the flesh, in the spirit, they are his children. He is Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end. The branch and the root of David. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so magnificent. We thank you that we can pray to you and through you to your Father the glorious one who sits upon the throne above everything. We thank you that one day you will come to take your kingdom and that you will deliver the kingdom over to your Father so that he may be all in all. We look forward to that day. We look forward to seeing your Father face to face, Lord Jesus, and to being like you. And we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.